You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're here to talk about one of the most important doctrines of the Reformation and, frankly, of all church history. You're listening to Cornfield Theology. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here, pastor of Redemption Hill Church, located in Des Moines Metro. Thanks for listening to another podcast of Cornfield Theology, located in the cornfields of the great state of Iowa, the motherland, flyover country, whatever language you want to use, whatever word you want to use, we are here in Iowa, in particular central Iowa, Des Moines Metro. So thanks for listening. Um, This is a ministry of Redemption Hill Church, like I said, located in Des Moines Metro, um, Redemption Hill, we meet at we, we meet at Saturday, Sunday morning, Redeem Elementary, 10 a.m. If you want to join us and you're in the area, come on by. Uh, you can catch out all the content at cornfieldtheology.com. That's where we do blogging, podcasting, lands there as well. Also, all the relevant places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places that people like to listen. Also, be sure to follow uh, Redemption Hill Church on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's where we put all these posts at. So in addition to all the podcasting outlets. Check us out on social media. Best place to go, though, is to cornfieldtheology.com. And if you want to sign up at the bottom of the page, anytime that a blog drops, you'll be able to get an email to your inbox. We don't spam you. We just send you uh, when we upload a blog or a podcast. So thanks for listening. Thanks for caring. And hopefully this particular conversation is going to be edifying and encouraging and clarifying to you. Today, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of justification. And um, I'm here today with Dean Klein. Dean, how you doing, man? Pretty good. Dean, you are a member of Redemption Hill Church. How long have you been a member? I was thinking about that on the way here. That's a good question. Three years. At least. I mean, when when 2020 is kind of like 10 years to everyone, right? It's a forgotten year, I guess. <laughs> it's a, it was a forgotten year. It felt like 10 years. <laughs> it's just, uh, But for three years, we planted uh, Redemption Hill Church about three and a half years ago. So I think you, you and your lovely family came on pretty quickly after we planted when we were meeting in Waukee. Yeah. And then one thing I realized about you right away is that you love to think well about theology in general, broadly speaking. Um, you got your master's from where? Reformed Theological Seminary. And you're not a Presbyterian? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably in, in some ways an unofficial Presbyterian. <laughs> but you're not sprinkling any babies anytime soon. No. We, in fact, uh, we'll be talking, well, we might touch on baptism. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because Augustine had some thoughts on uh, justification, baptism, and the Lord's table, but we'll, we'll table that for a moment and uh, we'll get to that here in a moment. So the doctrine of justification, Dean, let me just throw out this question because I think if I were listening, I'd want to, I'd want this particular question answered first before I continue to listen. Why do we need to talk about the doctrine of justification? Well, I'm reminded of the, the verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Um, it says, It is appointed unto man once to die. Hmm. And after this, the judgment. And so the, the point of the writer of Hebrews is that there's coming a day, as reiterated by Paul throughout his epistles, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Mm, that's right. And give an account of our lives. And the, the big overriding question when it comes to the doctrine of, of justification by faith and all of the debates that have gone on throughout the centuries 
is how is a sinful man justified before a holy God? Mm-hmm. In essence, how can the unrighteous be righteous enough to escape God's judgment? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, and we'll establish this with uh, Scripture later, I'm sure, is that we're all sinful beings in need of the grace of God. And there's coming a day where we have to stand before a holy God, much like Isaiah did in the temple. And in Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. That's a beautiful passage. And his vision of this holy God. Now we're talking about the prophet of God. Yeah. When he is in the presence of a holy God... He I'm begins to pronounce yeah. judgment on himself. Yeah, he understands that he's like un- been undone. That's the language he uses. Yeah. He says, I am undone. Yep. I am a man of unclean lips. He is literally spiritually annihilated. And I've and I've made taken that passage because it gets to, into, to atonement, right? That coal that touches his lips and makes him clean, right? There's some symbolism going on there, but it's a sense of atonement. And that t- touches upon what? Justification, being right? Exactly. That's that's yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah. before you continue on, I think what's worth pointing out other areas of of salvation that are connected to justification. We use language like the wrath of God. Um, we are depraved sinners. You know, that'd be another category of forgiveness. How is one forgiven? Yeah. All these areas are informed by and influenced on the doctrine of justification. You got to get this particular doctrine right if you truly understand what it means to be a sinner. If you want to understand what it means to be forgiven, right? Right. What it means to have your sins atoned for. They're all connected to one right. another. And justification, in a sense, is it's not the only gift in salvation. Right. But without it, no other gifts are possible. And it is, in fact, the entryway into our union with Christ. So, you know, getting back to this this concept of, you know, there's coming a day where we give an account, and we'll get into the language of Romans 3 because it uses the courtroom uh, uh, language, the analogy of, of a day in court that we will all have. And I'm reminded of the words of John Calvin in his Institutes. He says, yeah. how shall we reply to the heavenly judge when he calls us to account? Let us envision for ourselves that judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted for us in Scripture, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, Job 3.9, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, Job chapter 9, whose wisdom catches the wise in their craftiness, Job chapter 5, beside whose purity all things are defiled, Job 25 whose righteousness not even the angels can bear, Job chapter 4, who makes not the guilty man innocent, whose vengeance when once kindled penetrates to the depths of hell. Mm. So we are dealing with a holy God whom Mm. we can't even comprehend. So not everyone's going to talk like John Calvin. And um, I'm certainly, I don't talk like John Calvin when I talk about the doctrine and justification. And John Calvin's beautiful and wonderful. I got John Calvin quotes over all over these pages. Yeah. Uh, but why we're talking about it, even another answer or response to the question is because it's, it's lost in our churches. We were talking a little earlier before we, you know, hit the record button. And it's like, 
pastors either are not talking about it or they don't know how to articulate the doctrine justification. Exactly. It's missing within our churches. And so you don't need to talk like John Calvin in order, in order to communicate the glorious doctrine of justification. Right. And we need to re- reclaim that within our churches. Right. In fact, uh, David Shaw has written regarding the state of the modern church, the state of evangelicalism. Like, not He's, good? <laughs> <laughs> he not says great? That, he says, unfortunately— and we'll we'll delve in with we'll delve in later with the historic debate between Roman Catholicism and historic Protestantism. Right, but right. he he argues that evangelicalism evangelicalism today has a multitude of interpretations of justification by faith. In fact, he says that the doctrine of justification by faith is suffering from one of two fates in the church today. It has either retained its original meaning, but been declared peripheral to Paul's concerns. Sure. It's kind like, of put on the so back. Like, so like, it's like Paul never wrote the book of Galatians. Yeah, well, let's get on to more practical <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then secondly, or it has remained central, but undergone a degree of redefinition. And that's where N.T. Wright, we'll talk about that yeah. in a minute. He's he's redefined the doctrine of justification, him and others, him being the most prominent of the theologians who've gone into a different direction. But this is how practical the doctrine of justification by faith is. It matters regarding our assurance before God. In other words, how can one know with certainty mm-hmm. that if if one were to die tonight, that they would stand in the presence of God forgiven and righteous and saved before a holy God, a God that must punish sin, yeah. a God who is just and must punish sin. How do we have the assurance today? Can we have that yeah, assurance? Yeah. You know, this is why I love celebrating. There's several reasons why I love this, but I love celebrating the Lord's table every single week at Redemption Hill. Every time we've gathered physically together as a church, we've done that because it's taking you back to the justification of God, right? We're taken back to the atoning work of Christ at the cross. We're forced to look at our sin and be like, it's it's back to Isaiah 6, right? Like, I'm undone You're right. <laughs> before God. And so that should lead us where? To the cross of Jesus Christ, where right. God's wrath was poured upon Christ at the cross because of our sin. It reminds me of the words of the psalmist David who says, if God should mark iniquities, hmm. who could stand? Yeah. That's, that's the, so that's. We're damned. How, and right? so, yes, it, it, this matters. This doctrine matters regarding our eternal soul. It, it, yeah, and people are like, oh, you guys are just intellectual folks who like to talk theology and blah, 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 blah. And, and like, no, this actually matters. I mean, we, we are in a Romans 12 moment. You know, we want to be rene- you know, renewed in our mind. Yes, absolutely, 100%. My God, be transformed by the renewal of our mind. But there's more going on here. Eternity is at stake. Exactly, and 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 of course the the concept of assurance, which we'll get into, I'm sure, um, certainly uh, impacts the way we live. Mm. Um, if in fact we're striving to uh, earn our salvation through our own efforts and works, which I did for a, a great deal of my life, I grew up in the the Roman Catholic. Yeah, Church. We, we can talk about that for a moment. I did too, right? And so I'm sure this maps onto how you grew up. For me. To be, you know, justified before God, even though I didn't really understand that language, but I kind of knew what was going on. I had to do good works, right? For me, in the kind of the, the the Catholic vibe or circles that I was in, it was just like, how do you do good? How do you just be a good person? 
the more robust view of justification of the Catholic Church is actually more centered on the sacraments. Exactly. You know, these are the means of grace or whatever else have you. And that is in, in contrast to the Reformation and what Luther was talking about, what Calvin was talking about, and all of our Reformed brethren um, from the 16th century. Like they were saying, no, 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 no. There is... There's no works that need to be done to be righteous before God. That's what was driving Luther mad as an Augustinian monk, because he knew his sin. Right. He, he's like, well, it seemed like he was one of the few people in church history, at least in that time frame, right, leading up to the 16th century, who had who really understood the profound sense of his own sin and what that means before a holy and just God. And he also understood the righteousness of God. In mm. fact, he was trained as a lawyer, and so he understood the. The, the purpose of God's law, which Paul says judges us. Yeah. Um, and, and I can read some, maybe I can get into that here in a little bit, but, but Paul establishes the argument that, that the righteousness of God is abs- actually not our friend yeah. if we don't have an alien or a righteousness outside of us that is, give, that is, in, that is declared onto us. Right. By faith, and we'll we'll get into those well, texts. Let's get into that. Let's get into the the uh, question. Now that we now that we kind of explained why sure we're talking about justification, uh, it's an important doctrine. Uh, it, the churches are are backing off on this because that, that forces you to talk about sin, forces you to talk about the wrath of God. And, you know, in these days, people want to talk talk about unicorns. Well, and, and that's ponies. how Paul begins his argument in Romans chapter one. Yeah. When you know the book of Romans, obviously, is the, the 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 great treatment of. Not that it's not found in other passages, and we'll talk we'll talk about those. In but, particular, Romans one chapter one verses you know through chapter eleven. Right, and he begins with the wrath of God, the Correct. justice of God, the righteousness of God, and he says that the wrath of God is revealed, revealed. from heaven yeah. against all unrighteousness oh, God, yeah. of men. Then he takes us into Romans chapter three where he talks about how there's none righteous, no, no not one, one, none that seeks after God, mm-hmm. and that through the law is the knowledge of sin. He even b- builds a courtroom analogy where be, we will have to give an account, and every mouth will be silenced. But go ahead, and I so, think we're going to get into definitions. Yeah, 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 I think so. I think that's appropriate now, like, now that we've tried to explain why this is important, why we're getting into it. Um, preaching from the pulpit and churches can't be all about unicorns and ponies and how to do, be a good person. <laughs> No, there's much more important matters at stake here. And so the doctrine of justification needs to be preached. Now, what is the doctrine of justification? Well, justification, we, as you've said, Dean, is, is a principal benefit of redemption that Christ secured for the elect. So we're going to show our cards here for a moment. I say the elect because we're Reformed, we're Calvinists. There you go. Right, right. <laughs> the elect. Um, it wasn't all people. It was for God's chosen people in which he died, in which our Savior died. So elect sinners are declared righteous by God. And there's this word we, I, want to, I want to ask you to define for me, Dean. It's imputation, because this connects to the righteousness of Christ. When we say that the righteousness of Christ we, has been imputed, what does that mean? Well, it's a, it's, it's a term that Paul uses. It's not, it certainly wasn't originated by, you know, Reformed theologians. Paul used mm-hmm. that language. In fact, yep. it... It's found even in the Old Testament. And, and, and in Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul uses it this way. Um, well, you want a definition. It, it means to um, impart something that you do not have. Mm-hmm. It, it's, like a, it's like a double exchange. Um, 
when when we are declared righteous by God, we're, our sins are not only forgiven, but God considers us, his elect people, as those who have actually obeyed God's law perfectly. Now, why do I say that? Because one of the purposes of the incarnation, one of the purposes of Christ coming into this world was to fulfill the law of God on our behalf where we failed, Mm -hmm. where Adam failed. We failed in Adam, and therefore we needed Christ to fulfill obedience to the law. That's called his active obedience. And so in this great double exchange, if you will, when Christ died on the cross, he took upon himself our sin in his own body. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That righteousness was the righteousness that Jesus Christ fulfilled on our behalf through a lifetime of perfect obedience. And so that righteousness is imputed or given unto us simply. And then he takes our unrighteousness. So some had said that this concept that you're describing is like the great exchange. Yes. So I think Jerry Bridges, yeah. I don't know if he was the first one to use that specific language. That's, that's where I stole it from. There's a great exchange. Jesus takes on all my sin and I get his sinless righteousness. Uh, we say, you know, kind of like a robe, you put on a robe and I'm covered in that robe. And that robe is the righteousness of Christ. To right. use kind of a word picture analogy. Right. And it's, it's crucial that that happens because it's not an—you know, to be forgiven of sins is great, but that takes us to ground zero. Yeah. We need a righteousness that takes us right. into the presence of God. And that's really important, what you just said there. It's, forgiveness of sins is great, but there's more. There's more that Christ offers those whom he redeems. And his righteousness is so important to think about. Um, and so when we talk about this righteousness, that you mentioned Luther earlier— it drove him crazy. He, he, he was terrified by the righteousness of yeah. God. But once he found this doctrine of justification by faith, and he discovered that God gives us his own righteousness, and that Christ fulfilled that, and that it's on the basis of faith, it was like the doors of paradise opened wide for him. Yeah. So, so Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Right. Not he, only taking the penalty of sin, but giving us his righteousness. His righteousness. That's exactly right. So you and I right now sit here, sitting in, living in, breathing upon the righteousness of Christ in our life. Right. Clothed in the righteousness Clothed, of yeah, Christ. Yeah. And, and Luther, he used a Latin phrase, I won't try to say it, but he talked about us being both... Uh, unrighteous or sinners and saints at the same time. You yeah. remember that Latin yeah. quote? Yep. And, and, and so simultaneously, and so that's at the heart of the debate that um, particularly the Roman Catholic Church has had issues with. And I wanted to read from Romans 4 uh, regarding what Paul had to say about imputation. Be- before you get there, I think it's important for the listener to understand we've been, we've been somewhat using the word righteousness and justified interchangeably at times, not all the time, but at times. That's happening because the, the Greek word's the same. Righteousness, justice. Justified. Yeah, yep. exactly. It's the same Greek root word. And so depending on context or how we're using it, it's very specific. We're talking about justification uh, or we're talking about righteousness depending on... And know, so at the heart of the matter is how does a holy God justify sinners? Mm-hmm. He justifies sinners 
on based upon the righteousness of his only begotten son Jesus right. Christ. Right. And so Paul uses the same language. He says um because this is not just a New Testament concept. It really began in the Old Testament. Uh, it says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, mm. and it was credited for him to him as righteousness. It was, he was declared righteous before he even done one good work. Mm. Um, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then he goes into David uh, from Psalm 32. Uh, David also speaks of the blessing of the man who to whom God credits. That word credit could be translated imputed. Yeah, right. Imputed righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. We used that phrase earlier, the covering yeah, yeah. by the righteousness of Christ. Right. Blessed is the the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. And so he's um, he's using the argument from the, the Old Testament mm-hmm. in the life of Abraham and David to establish the doctrine of imputation. Yeah, he is. And uh, another thing we, I think it's worth pointing out in, term- in determining, you know, what is justification by faith, and that last word there, faith, is really important. Um, this is not something that I can do on my own. I cannot work out my own salvation. The only ingredient in which one is justified and made righteous is faith. Right, and we need to, to, to make clear that it is not even our faith that saves. Right. The, in other words... Rome argued that faith was inadequate to be the grounds for our salvation, and mm-hmm. Calvin responded, said, faith is not a ground at all. Yeah, because um, faith comes from God. Right. Right. And so, and a lot of people will turn it into kind of a, a work. Um, it, it really, faith in a sense, is like an empty hand receiving the gift. Mm-hmm. Um, it, In essence, we are not justified by our faith, but through our faith. It's 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 more of an it's 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 not the ground but maybe an object to receive and it's better to say it's almost shorthand to say we are justified by Christ. Right. We are justified by the work of Christ and we talked about that earlier his active obedience and then his passive obedience in through his death on the cross. Right. So this is where good hermeneutics really pays off because when you read in Galatians 3:24 says this for we hold that one is justified by faith it's very clear but that's a distinction and contrary to uh, apart from the law, right? Right. So I'm not justified by that, but there's something else going on here with faith. And it's not a faith that you can conjure up, that you can make your own. No, it is something outside, objective, not objective, but something outside of you in which faith is given to you. You said that open hand. Right. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Right. The moment you say faith is yours, you've made faith a work. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and to be clear, uh, uh, Paul says... In fact, he says, he uses language like in uh, Romans 3, uh, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. I talked about receiving that mm-hmm. gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Um, Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace, peace with God through our yeah. Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and people so, might be asking, hey, where are you getting this idea that faith is this gift that is given? It would easily go to Ephesians 2.8. But by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own works, but it's a gracious gift of God. So that, so what? So we want to boast about it. Exactly. 
the moment I insert one ounce of energy into justification, all of a sudden I'm able to say, hey, look at me. And then also I can say, I can screw it up. <laughs> you <know>? Absolutely. <laughs> I can mess this up right quick if I'm involved in any of this. Right. And so to believe in a sense, it, it's not the greatness of our faith. It's the greatness of our Savior. Yeah. Uh, it It's just, uh, it, it's a weak faith that takes hold of a, a great Savior. Yeah. That's good. So that hopefully that's helpful in terms of, I don't know, providing some clarity what justification is. Hey, one thing I kind of want to go through real quick, and I don't want to bore people too much with this, but I think it is important to acknowledge that, um, and it's like this with most doctrines, by the way, there's a, there's a, a development of doctrine in church history. And, and we can see this on a more, um, just take the lens to the first four centuries, for example. What do we see developing year over year? Uh, century over century within uh, the time Christ died to, say, 325 AD. We see a development going on in terms of how we understand Christology and how we understand the Trinity, right? Right. So we had the Council of Nicaea, then we get 381, then we got 425, Council of Ephesus, right? These councils take place because oftentimes they are a reaction to heresy. Sure. But there's a development of doctrine going on here. And so it's, it's no wonder to me that we don't have the robust... A doctrine of justification that we have at the Reformation in the 16th century. We don't have that in the 4th century. And the reason why I'm not put off by that is because they're, they're trying to figure out, they're trying to articulate well, I think they figured it out, they're trying to articulate well, what it what does it mean for God to be three in one? Right. <laughs> right. What does it mean for God, for Christ to be uh, fully human and fully God, right? What is the deity of Christ? They have to articulate those essential doctrines. And I think over time, we begin to see justification by faith really take a stronger hold and more, with more clarity. And so we go back to Augustine. We were talking about Augustine earlier. I'll go back before Augustine. Yeah, go for it. I can go to Clement. I can go, be- I can go before Augustine. <laughs> uh, go to Clement. John Chrysostom. 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 Is that? I said, say- you know what? what here's what I, here's my thing when you say words that to anyone I say. If you don't know a word, just say it with confidence. What we know is he's a he's the he's the golden great <laughs> the golden, preacher. That's right. John Christostom is an underrated uh, early, early yeah. church father, man. Yeah. How did I screw his name up? But okay, uh, he proclaimed that Christ does also make them that are filled with putrefying sores of sin suddenly righteous, mm. and it is to explain this that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Um, and so, and that, 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 that carries the notion that it is an instantaneous act, an instantaneous legal declaration by God to the sinner and not a process. And, and that's where, as you get, as, as we go through church history, we're going to see that that's at the core of the debate is, it's not that the Roman Catholic Church denies justification. Right. It's not that they deny grace in salvation right they don't um but they they apply it differently they teach it as more of a an infusion of faith with works right an infusion of righteousness that is a process that ultimately is settled by god at a later date that's Mm -hmm. why there's a it is difficult to have assurance of salvation within the Roman Catholic structure, mm-hmm. which I did not have growing up. Right. I was terrified of God. Yeah, me too. And finally came to that breaking point like Luther had, that 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 paradise yeah. moment that where it, everything just kind of opened wide open for me and it was it was life changing and liberating to 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 know that 
I could be forgiven and be assured of my salvation in a moment by God yeah. on the basis of faith. Yeah. So in in the early church, we have some inkling, inklings, some clear statements about go just, to Augustine. Just well, let me go to Clement first before okay. that. Um, uh, Clement said this, so all of them received honor and greatness, not through themselves or through their own deeds or the right things they did, but through his will. And we therefore by his will have been called in Jesus Christ are not justified of ourselves or by our wisdom or insight of religious devotion or holy deeds we have done from the heart, but by the faith by which almighty God has justified all men from the very beginning to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So even, even with Clement early on, we, we were beginning to see an understanding of justification by faith. And we, we and what year that. was that? What was Clement? Third century. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Clement of Alexandria. And so then we move on. We can move on to Augustine. Now, everyone loves Augustine. The Catholics proclaim Augustine. The Protestants claim Augustine. Augustine, Augustine, Augustine. And rightfully so. When, when we get to the Reformation, you have, you know, the, the folks in Switzerland and Geneva, Strasbourg. They're appealing to Augustine. Basil. Yeah. They're, they're going to Augustine. They're like, hey, what, are that, what that guy said? <laughs> you know, and Erasmus was doing the same. We'll talk about him. But, but Augustine said this, and then I'm going to qualify what he said and say, Augustine got halfway there. He didn't get all the way there. He got halfway there. But he said this, and this sounds really good on the, on the front end and out of context. To the man who believes in him, in capital H, believe in God, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is imputed for righteousness. And that's, uh, he wrote that in On the Merits of Forgiveness of Sins and On the Baptism of Infants. <laughs> so... You take it out of context. You read that, and you're like, "Hey, that's pretty good." I've got another quote by Augustine. When you here. well, you insert it into the context, you begin you begin to realize Augustine actually leans heavily into baptism and the Lord's table as acts of works that accompany justification. And that's where there's things Augustine says there. I'm like, "Amen, Hallelujah, love you, brother." Uh, and there's other times where I'm like, "Man, <laughs> I don't know." All right, what do you got? Well. This is what he, he wrote. He said, just as we are made righteous, our righteousness being not our own, but God's, not in ourselves, but in Christ. So you get, yes, you, you get you get some things that cause you to scratch your head, but then you see that. And then it gets back to what we were talking about beforehand. I, I wonder how much Augustine might have been influenced by the, the Latin translation. The Vulgate. The Vulgate by Jerome. Yep which translated the Greek word for uh, justification or righteousness, actually righteousness, uh, didakeo. Well, I think that one's dikainos, dikainos. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's based on that word, and, and the Vulgate under Jerome's translation translated the word to make righteous. This is really a, important, actually. Yeah, exactly, because one word can change uh, uh, history in a sense. Yes. Um, and it can change the understanding of, of of what we mean by how is one justified, and and so in the in the Latin Vulgate, it's translated to make righteous, at mm-hmm. least back then, to make righteous, as opposed to what we've been arguing from the New Testament, clearly mm-hmm. from the writings of Paul, that God declares us righteous, as even though it may as as we as you look at us, we're not, we're clearly sinners in need of God's grace. But we are declared as if we're covered by the righteousness of Christ. And this and this small distinction made a massive difference in the Reformation. So for people who don't know, when you get into the 15th, 16th century, something 
different was going on. Um, academia was going back to the sources ad fontes back to the sources. And, um, that's where Erasmus plays actually a critical role as well. Cause Erasmus all of a sudden who was a Catholic and a devout Catholic never left the Catholic church, but he's like, you know what? We have all these writings in Greek in the new Testament that predate the Latin Vulgate that Jerome um, had translated. Why don't we go back to those sources, see what that says. And that's when we really began to see these new, these very, they seem minor, but major differences in translation, right? And so it is a very different thing to make yourself righteous. That means you got to go out and do things. Right. It's another thing to be made righteous because of what God has done. So when we get into the Reformation period, that's why indulgences are a big deal, right? Right. That's why, because you have to do something to be made right with God. Right, which became a part of the... Um the consternation of yeah. Luther as he yeah. was God was preparing him to to nail the 95 thesis to the Wittenberg doors yeah, that's right. and and kick off the reformation now we have we may have some theological differences with Erasmus but we yeah. won't question his greek scholarship not at all and he and he said this is a bad translation in the latin vulgate it's at, he he translated it to declare righteous even though he himself was not a part of the you know the lutheran uh, Reformation, the, yeah. the Reformation under Luther's leadership. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one final word on Erasmus, and we can kind of move on from him. He did actually quite a lot for the Reformation. Yeah, that we don't give him credit for. Certainly. Um, while he never left the Catholic Church, he was he was tapping into the very thing Luther was tapping into, and Luther was feeding off Erasmus. And now I think sometime in church history, those two got in a little little spar. Yeah. You know? They both initially wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Certainly. Yeah. And then Erasmus like, all right, I'm not. I'm not going to burn the house down. And Luther's <laughs> like, where's the match? <laughs> you know? um, well, I don't know if Luther anticipated what no, might have been no, coming, no, but he, no. he certainly lit lit the fire. Yeah, he did. He lit the fire of the Reformation. They got a flame. Yeah, no doubt. And so church history is important. I mean, we see... So in response to the... Well, did you want to get into the Council of Trent or do you want to... Well, did you have something on the Council of Orange? Oh, yeah, the Council of Orange yeah. back in... I find that interesting. because uh, Back in 529... AD because yeah. we talked about Augustine uh, the Council of Orange it's it was actually the second Council of Orange and yeah. it was in 529 AD was one of the more important councils of the early church and it's often it was often pointed to actually by the reformers as evidence that Rome had abandoned the theology of its own council fathers and church doctors hmm. um, Obviously, they were trying to settle the, the, the dispute between Augustine and Pelagius, but not only did they condemn Pelagianism, which denied original sin and believed in the power of human will and all that stuff, and we won't get into that's another subject, but um, it, um, it, it also condemned semi-Pelagianism, yeah. which pretty much, you know, that's the doctrine that fallen creatures, although sinful, have an island of righteousness which made them morally competent enough to contribute toward their salvation mm -hmm. by taking hold of the offer of the grace of God, which is, you know, what Roman, Rome teaches. Uh, the, the Council of Orange upheld Augustine's view that the will is evil by corruption of nature and becomes good only by a correction of grace. Um, and it reads, I, I don't know if I have time to read some of the canons here, but it certainly reads like a reformed statement of faith. Yeah. And it's often overlooked by the church. So they were scratching on something. They were scratching in, in something that we would like, hey, 
just keep going with that, just keep going with that. But unfortunately, what we have within the developing Catholic Church at the time, so Council of Orange, 6th century, not Orange, Florida. But, right. But like It France. talks about, yeah, it talks so, about human depravity, the man's need of mercy. Um, it, yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful doctrine. So and, we, again, we see, we see statements within church history prior to the Reformation where we're just like, oh, oh yeah, we're almost there. We're almost there. Well, That's this good is, stuff. This is what Robert Godfrey said. He's a church historian. Yeah, he's really good. And he said that justification by faith was never a settled position no. until after the Council of Trent. Mm. And so, yes— You mean you, within the Catholic Church? Period. It, yes, uh, it, period, in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a settled— it was the settled position by Paul. So I think, Cal- I think Calvin would have. Uh... <laughs> no, no, that's what he was talking about in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, and basically, he calls the Council of Trent a novelty, yeah. um, not a culmination of historic teaching. It's right. it's in essence, it's a reaction to Luther. Mm-hmm. It's a reaction to the Reformation, and so they 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 grabbed a bunch of ragtag individuals. Originally, there were some some cardinals at the Council of Trent who affirmed Luther's teaching, right? And they were sent home. They were yeah. sent back. Right, right. This um, was this, this this was the moment because I think Calvin even attended the Council of Trent, um, and it became clear that the Council of Trent was not going to reform; that they were just going to be distinct from what we now call the Reformation. Right. They weren't going to go the way of Luther. They were going to go their own way. And they that, weren't even going to go the way of Pelagius. They didn't, right. because Calvin uh, or Luther was saying, this sounds a lot like Pelagianism. So mm-hmm. they wanted to make the point, we're not Pelagians, but clearly they're semi-Pelagians. Right, right. And so what they miss is, and maybe some of the teaching of um, Bernard of Clairvaux, who, who uh, affirmed yeah, Bar- the doctrine. Yep, Bar- Bernard of Clairvaux, yeah. And then uh, you mentioned um, Anse. Anselm, yep. Anselm, did you have anything on him? Yeah, you? a couple of things. Um, he wrote a phenomenal book. So Anselm's one of those guys in church history, I think 11th, uh, 11th That's century. around the time of Bernard. And- yeah, Bernard Cliveau. Um, he didn't write a lot, but what he wrote was actually really good. He's one of those guys where you don't you don't judge him based upon the tomes and tomes and tomes that, like, say, an Augustine wrote, right? But the things he did write were extremely well-written and thought out and occurred to Homo, uh, which is why did God become man? He wrote that particular book. It's worth worth a read if you're a Protestant. And he settles on various doctrines that lead him, that is leading us into a Protestant understanding of the doctrine of justification. A couple of things that he said: man is sinful. He was very clear about that. Um, man needs salvation, so he's that's part of his logic. He's going through. God does intend to save, right? And then the question becomes, how? You know, what does that look like? God cannot save humanity through a sinless man, just man, right? He cannot save humanity through a sinless man or a good angel or an act of God's forgiveness solely on mercy, right? You can't. There's got to be more. And that's one of the arguments he's making. Um, the incarnation and death of the Son of God was the only way to save mankind. And then I'm quoting Angus Stewart, who wrote this particular article on Anselm. And so... Uh, there's this dialogue between, and the way that the, the way the book's written is like there's this dialogue between Anselm and another person, and there's a question and answer, then a response, and kind of rebuttal. It kind of leads you down this road. Like at the end of the day, the way that we were saved is that we were justified by God through Christ. That's what we're led to. And Anselm, some people argue he doesn't go far enough, 
but in his time and in his context, he gets us. He gets, he gets just so close to where the Protestant Reformation took the just the doctrine of justification, as they're obviously reading Paul and they're reading Romans and they're reading Galatians. So, if you're if you're thinking to yourself, hey, within church history, who are some of the more prominent theologians who write about ju- justification? Anselm's a top two, top three for sure. With that, in that in that particular book in particular. Yes. Okay. So. I would go to him as well. Um, so let's talk a little more about justification during the during the Reformation. Just as we take a we took a wide swath at some thinkers in church history. You mentioned Luther. We've mentioned Calvin. That justification involves both a legal element. That's really important here. So you mentioned at the at the, at the front of this that think of a courtroom setting. Right. So if you if you're listening, you're trying to get in your mind. Okay, what is justification? Pretend you're on trial. Right. You're on trial because you've done wicked things. And the judge is up there, and he's about to pull down the gavel on you and send you to life in prison. But then somebody intercedes in your behalf and says, I am going to take the punishment for this person so that this person can be set free. And not only that, so that's forgiveness of sins, that person now has the righteousness of the person who set him free. So we right. have this, this courtroom thing going on. If we, if we would see that live in like real life, you know, we'd be like, that's crazy. Who does that? <laughs> Who does that? So it's this legal and forensic understanding of justification that Luther and Calvin are really tapping into. And as you mentioned earlier, Dean, it's because of a of the proper understanding of justification from the Greek New Testament. Right. Yeah, and there's a great uh, quote, and I I don't think I have it near me. Well, you have it memorized? I I can kind Got everything of, else memorized, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it the the idea is that um, it is by the the as you mentioned the death of Christ um, that um, by one man's death we receive life by one man's obedience he covers our disobedience mm-hmm. that the wrath of God does not find us um, is is by Henry Smith. Um, and I, I didn't quote him fairly, but that's kind of the concept that that uh, that justification. It, it, it's it's the the phrase that's helpful is we are justified by grace through faith, th- by grace alone, through faith alone, yeah. in Christ, Christ alone. alone. Yeah. Um, and souls. you mentioned Ephesians two eight yeah nine earlier. Yeah. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Yeah. Here's what Luther said, and I quote, The doctrine of justification is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, and without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, I mean, are, are we doing a little hyperbole, Luther? Well, he, he, <laughs> no, he, actually he, not. <laughs> right, it's the article, he called it the article on which the church stands or falls. And frankly, mm-hmm. it's the article on which our lives stand or fall. It's mm-hmm. the the article on which uh, our eternal destiny uh, stands or falls. And um, you know, Paul wrote. Uh, uh, he talked a, a little bit about his spiritual resume before he was converted to Christ in, mm-hmm. in Philippians chapter three. Um, and if any man could could claim, you know, a human standard of righteousness that that could not be exceeded paul was one of those persons and you know he was a religious zealot a pharisee of pharisees he said uh 
Um, and he said, basically the bottom line, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, all of this, this religious, hefty religious resume and all the, the good works that I do, I count it as loss mm. for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish mm. so that I may gain Christ. We bring absolutely nothing to the courtroom, if you will, mm -hmm. nothing to the table that we can bring to God except our sin, frankly. And Paul says, I, I count it all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. There's that that clothing of yeah. righteousness of Christ, right? An alien kind of righteousness and a righteousness that is given to us that we cannot produce. And when we say alien, we're not talking like X-Files type. No, we're alien. talking about outside. Outside. <laughs> we're talking about... <laughs> no, I might, the sci-fi in me just kind of kicked in. Like, <laughs> well, thinking. he says, I'm, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God outside of us on the basis of faith. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that we want to so badly insert ourselves into this, into the equation, right? Well, certainly. You know, I, I mean, while you think about it, let me just frame it a little bit more for you. I'm not necessarily trying to think of this from a reform perspective. Let's just, if you can just step back and we just look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for example. It's so clear that that we're justified by faith alone and grace alone, right? Period. And um, but so often we try to insert ourselves, and I I, I I interact with Christians on a regular basis who get kind of hung up on that. What's why the hang up? Why it seems so clear in Scripture? And I'm not trying to belittle, you know, folks who would think differently, but I'm trying to understand. Well, I don't. I I think that it gets back to. Uh, do we have a a, a, a a true understanding of who God is, number one, mm. and how holy he is? I, um, I mean, it's certainly, that's foundational. And then do we have a, a true understanding of, of the depth and, and, and wickedness of our own hearts and, and our sinfulness? See, I don't, I don't think we do. And when I say that, I mean the church generally. Like at our, at our church, we, I, we try to draw that out every single week, you know. We're just trying to be really clear. But I think broadly we're avoiding topics that don't make us feel good, right? Like it doesn't make anyone feel good to be like, hey, you're you're a wretched sinner. <laughs> you know? No, we want to hear your best life now. Yeah, we want to hear your best life now. You're, you, you know, we would pat on the head and slapped on the butt. Well, I guess not that slapped on the back. Be like, hey, good job, buddy. Great job. Go out and get her done. Here's your trophy. And we want to hear, and we're and we're used to moralistic preaching too, as yeah, well. That's right. And, which it dominates a lot of evangelicalism. It does, which is why I have a hard time using the term evangelical these days. I'm trying to find a new term. <laughs> Somebody help me. <laughs> I think I, I raise it because we need to get back to where Luther was, where Calvin was, where many of our Puritan brethren were at. We don't need to, we don't, need, again, I said this earlier, we don't need to sound like them, right? We're, we're at a different time, a different context, but we, we want the theological depth that they had. They, we, they, we want their, the understanding of God that they had from Holy Scripture, that's what we want as well. 
Well, and 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 frankly, um, the stakes are high. Um, what do you mean by that? We're not people. People often make the the percept or the misunderstand have the misunderstanding that us 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 Protestants and Catholics are are close. We're just kind of talking past each other. That's not true. But if you read the Council of Trent, for instance, I I wanted to get back to that just for a brief moment. Yeah, go for it. In their canons, they say, if anyone says a man is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Just let let think about that. Let if, him be damned. Let him be damned. <laughs> if you think you're justified by faith alone, you should be damned. That's if, what that's official doctrine of the Catholic Church. Right. That people say, well, they've they've changed. But if you read their, I've heard. Uh, both Catholic theologians interviewed, but yeah, also yeah. if you read their modern day catechism, they 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 do appeal back to the Council of Trent. I'm not saying every Roman Catholic believes that because no, I know no, Catholics no. that don't believe that. No, when I was at St. John's, is where I did like second masters, right? Catholic Benedictine University up in Collegeville, Minnesota, great school. Um, I was doing a THM up there, and uh, actually they were very ecumenical. I took a particular class where the teacher was trying to sell me something, and it was this: we're a lot closer than you realize. And then I kept going back to this particular doctor. I'm like, where are you at on this? Is it faith alone by grace alone through Christ alone? No. no well, no, it's not that. Well, then what are we talking about here? Right. Like, because this is essential. Like, to, to ask the question, how is a person saved? Like, that, that is one of the biggest questions of any religion. Like, that, there might be different iterations of how that's articulated in different faith traditions or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's how you made right between between you and a God or whatever, gods or whatever, if you want to talk polytheism, that's essential. And how you answer that is a, is a watershed. Right. It's kind of like that that question that we used to ask many years ago when we would talk to people about the gospel. We said we would, one of the questions we would ask is, if God, if you were to die today and, and God asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And if there's any any pointing to yourself then you have reason to boast. Or doubt. Or doubt. <laughs> like, that was my case growing up in the Catholic Church. And again... And, mo- and unfortunately, the vast majority of people out there in the streets believe that somehow God will generally let us in as long as we don't kill anybody yeah, right. or, or commit some heinous crime. When the fact of the matter is, is that um, Romans chapter... Um, Three verse twenty, Paul says, yeah. "Let's just get uh, right into our because sin." Because of the by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in Romans six twenty three, he says, "The wages of sin, sin is, is death, death. Yeah. but the free gift of eternal life is is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Mm. One of the other canons in the in this Council of Trent says. If anyone says that men are justified by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by direct remission of sins, let him be anathema. Let him be yeah. damned. These doctrines matter. Yeah, they do. And, and we're, we're uh, poking the Catholic Church bear a little bit, and I get that. But I do think— Well, we have it in our own evangelical circles today. We do, and we'll get to that before <laughs> we get there because that's where—I I mean— And Protestant circles. Totally. I, I, got, I, got, I have more beef with Protestants on this than I do with Catholics, frankly, because— Catholics have made it clear, actually, where they're at. Now, whether every Catholic believes that, it's a different question, but well, in terms and, of doctrinally. And, and, this, and the, the, the thing that makes the Council—I I, I will give the Council of Trent credit. It, it clearly 
defines the the issues and it it 100%. pretty much nails what i believe yeah and it and it anathemizes me yeah totally <laughs> yeah at least, at least at least tell tell us what you believe and be clear about it and that's why we're doing this podcast and justification right right we just want to be clear about what we believe and why and not not to pretend and i think i think that state of evangelicalism doesn't even know what they believe on the doctor of justification that's what bugs me I dry, it's like a rock in my shoe every single day. It's like, come on, just think about it for five minutes. Can you give me five? <laughs> and let's just think through what it means to be forgiven and to be justified and how all this relates together, what you, how your sin relates to the righteousness of Christ and why all that fits together, and why all that matters. Well, you know, you mentioned we're poking the bear, but I, I, I was a Roman Catholic to, uh, for 18 years of my life, and I actually cherish many of those years because they shaped in me a triune view, a, a triune and majestic and holy view of who God is. They they established uh, the central doctrines of historic Christianity, but mm-hmm. it was just that one big question. Yeah. There's a few other ma- matters that obviously I have problems with, but that one big overriding question, how can a sinner like me be assured that my sins are forgiven, and that I will one day spend eternity with a holy God. Yeah, so, you know, talking about the Catholic Church, yeah, Council of Nicaea 325, um, Constantinople, Ephesus. Like, there are certain councils in church history we can look upon together and be like, yep, 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 Yeah, yep, we're yep. all in agreement. Yep. Uh, what about salvation? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hard stop. And that's a big question. And that's been the debate for years. It's, it has been. Yeah. yeah. That's right. All right. Let's get into um, our own brethren, the Protestants. Dean, the rock is in my shoe. Pull out this piece of paper here. I was doing a little research, and um, I was coming coming across some readings that I I'd had from years ago. And it seems to me that justification by faith, the way that we try to articulate it biblically, um, ha- is is under attack. And it's not just those who are avoiding justification by faith the way we have articula- articulated it, right? The churches that just don't care, don't know, whatever. It's actually within academia as well. One man some of you might have heard of is N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright is a, actually a brilliant thinker. I think he's English. Yeah. And um, he, a lot of conservative Protestants will read uh, N.T. Wright. There's, I've read stuff of N.T. Wright. I have I'm a book like, over there on my shelf yeah, uh, on the resurrection. I, yep. There's, I mean, I'm not throwing everything N.T. Wright has said out, out the window. Um, but on this particular doctrine, I take umbrage with N.T. Wright. Wright denies the imputation of Christ's righteousness, insisting that the apostle, I'm talking about the apostle Paul here, uh, was referring to Christ's faithfulness and the impartation of righteousness to believers. Impartation, meaning here's faith and I'm imparting righteousness. It's not the way we articulated it, um, imputation, like like it's a, like a robe or a cloak or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's very different. And so you've thought a little bit about N.T. Wright as well and um, the distinction here. You want to? What I would add is he, he talks about faith as kind of a covenant membership. Uh, he's, he's trying to decipher who's saved and who isn't in a sense. He's trying to answer that question. Right. And, and so the, the doctrine of justification becomes more ecclesiological rather than soteriological. Um, and basically the bottom line is what he's promoting is faith 
in a sense as faithfulness. Yeah. And that becomes that makes it a work. It does. And that that has ramifications on eschatology as well. So the question becomes how at the end of the day am I justified before God? And um, so I'm standing before the judgment seat of God and, and now it becomes on the basis of faith and not upon and, and of our faithfulness, even. yeah, yeah, and not on the righteousness of Christ, which is a misunderstanding of the original Greek word. And so, this is like uh, faith plus works coming in the back door within Protestantism, <laughs> right? <laughs> you right, know, it's right. like you're just hanging out, and we all got the, we all reading Calvin and Luther, and all of a sudden, someone comes in the back door, you're like, "What did you get here?" <laughs> it's like, "Whoa, no, 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 no!" <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> no, there isn't. It's like, isn't that Catholic? No, it's not Catholic because I'm Anglican. What? What? what, what? No, it sounds. Very Catholic. And so I'm going to take issue with um, this emphasis on justification by N.T. Wright and others, E.P. Sanders, James um, uh, G.D. Dunn. Um, there's a couple other ones as well. I, I don't think it's faithful to the text, first of all. It certainly doesn't stand in line within Protestant thinkers. Right. Um, as you look at church history. So. Anything else on that? Well, what I would add, it just kind of leads me to to a question that people are probably th- thinking out there, is then what wor- what role do works actually play? And of course, that's a that's a great question. That's you know, question. and we talk about you know the the debate again historically between Catholicism and Protestant Protestantism, and that debate often has centered around the Book of James and James chapter two. Yep. Um, and and what we're saying as, as Reformed Protestants is. Not that works are not important, but they don't play a role in our justification. In other words... They play a role in our sanctification. In our sanctification. So sanctification is that process whereby we are slowly being transformed, being changed into the image of Christ. And so what we would... What typical traditional Reformed theology teaches is that sanctification begins where justification ends. They're connected, mm-hmm. but they are distinct. Yep. Roman Catholicism Put them together. puts them together, infuses it together, yep. and that creates a lot of confusion. We would, but, but the point is, is if sanctification, to quote Donald Gray Barnhouse, if sanctification does not begin where justification ends, we have every reason to question whether justification actually began. What I'm saying is, and what Protestants traditionally have said is, though that we are justified by faith alone, that faith is not alone in the sense that that faith will produce good works as an evidence of our salvation. Yeah, fruit is so important, right? How will you know someone by their fruit, right? We go back to that wonderful passage in Ephesians 2. Let me just read it, read verse 8. I knew you were going to go there. Verse 9 and verse 10, right? Yeah, you mentioned James 2 as well. So we've said, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, that no one, that not a result of works, so that you may not boast. So you can't boast, I can't boast. But when you read verse 10, it connects the dots for us. For we are his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we were created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, right? Sanctification and good works are connected here. Uh, Works which God prepared beforehand for you to do. Right? In his sovereignty, right? Right. And so we see that works is the evidence or the result of God's justifying work in our life. Yeah, yes. And the Heidel, Heidelberg Catechism put it this way. They talked about 
the three G's. Hmm. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Yeah. Guilty sinners, that's the bad news. The bad news comes first. Got to know the bad news before the good news. Then we that leads us to the, the greatest news ever known to man, the Amen. greatest rescue story ever known to man. And our justification in Christ, that's grace. And then because we have been saved by an amazing grace, by an amazing and great Savior, Jesus Christ, out of gratitude, we want to please Him yeah. and obey Him Absolutely. and do good works in His name. Absolutely. I have one of my daughters, man. She's just, um, she's a peanut, um, a little sinner, like we all are. <laughs> but when they're, when she was been when she was younger and she's still kind of like this she's still kind of this in this age she just wants to please me as a, as a child she just wants my affirmation and affection she wants to please me and you know eventually that got to work that out and you know right but there's a childlike sense of that like i want to please god i i want to make i want to do everything i can to show my gratitude and thankfulness to god right and i want to do those good works in honor of him and for him um, so we have that sense of like, yeah, this is a good thing. And anytime you insert works into the justification, all of a sudden you begin to deteriorate um, the importance of what it means to have gratitude before God. That's a yeah. It's a it, that that's a miserable way to live, and it, absolutely, and, and creates tremendous insecurity on a daily basis. Because then, on any given day, you wonder, am I doing enough works here, or am I? Am I in or am I out? Yeah. Do I have enough faith even? Um, and so there's an, there is an overlooked uh, verse in First Peter chapter 2 where it says that Christ is precious mm. to those who believe. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's just, that, that's the outflow yeah. of, of true saving faith. Yeah. Let me uh, end with reading a little bit of our confession of faith. Before you do, can I add something? Absolutely. Man. Or actually, how about, can I, can I, Share a, a passage after you read that because yeah. I think it. I don't know if what you read with right, but did he talk about pitting Jesus against Paul and their understanding of justification? Well, that 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 idea is certainly out there. This is the new perspective of Paul, thing right? Going yeah, on that, here. that's a teaching of right. Yeah, exactly. And so we, we could talk about that for a moment. And I think part of that problem is we're not treating Scripture on on equal footing, right? Right. We're we're, we're picking the red letter Bible type thing. And, well, well, after you read that great definition and 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 statement from the the faith the confession of faith there i'm going to read a passage that jesus gave us mm. in the gospels that's good because uh, that may be a good place to end this because a lot of people will say well yeah paul taught a lot on justification but where is it in the gospels yeah well it's there yeah, it, it is. It's, it's it's not as prominent but um Definitely, it's there, and we'll hear it from Jesus himself. Yeah, and just one quick thing on that. As, as those who—I'll speak for myself—who love covenant theology, it drives me bonkers when people cherry-pick Scripture in some way. Old Testament versus New Testament, Paul versus Jesus. I mean, there's so many different—you know, this person's more reliable than that person. It's like, there's 66 books in the Bible, and they're all reliable, authoritative, and they tell us about who God is and our great need— and our great need for God because we're sinners. Absolutely. <laughs> Period. From beginning to end. From beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation. So the whole Jesus versus Paul thing, whatever. All right. This is a wonderful um, 
Confession of Faith, Redemption Hill Church is a confessional church. We have a Confession of Faith that is built off the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which they just stole from the Presbyterians. So we stole from the uh, particular Baptists. <laughs> and uh, we, we love the 1689, and uh, we've modernized it, and we've added a few sections as well. But uh, being a confessional church means that we have a lot of depth in our theology, and in breath as well. We're just not like, here's like 10 statements on your church website that tell you about the Trinity, that tell you about the Holy Spirit and eschatology. <laughs> and, that, and that was copy and pasted from, you know, First Baptist Church or First Methodist Church down the street, you know. No, we actually have meat to mm. what we believe as a church. And so this section of our Confession of Faith is uh, section 13. And I, I'm gonna, only going to read the first part, part one, and there's actually six parts. On justification of loan. And this is wonderful. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. This is not for anything done in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. They are not made righteous by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any gospel obedience to them. They are made righteous by imputing Christ's active obedience. You talked about that earlier, Dean. Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death by faith. This faith they have is not of themselves. It is a gift from God. And there's five which, more which sections. Which is certainly not something Aquinas would have wrote. Right. <laughs> which we, I don't know if we got into Aquinas we a did whole it, lot. But that's all right. What do you got? You got something with... Uh... I do. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 18. Yeah. Um, Jesus is giving a parable. And he, he explains why he is giving this parable, which is very helpful. He, in, in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Hmm. And that could, I mean, you could put your own name in there, perhaps. Um what role do you play in your salvation? He is talking to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That word keeps coming out. And viewed others with contempt. He, and so he, def- he goes on to describe two people. And I'll read it here in a minute. But we're, we're talking about a Pharisee. He's speaking to the Pharisees who engaged in rigorous obedience to the, the law of God and to their own man made-up laws. This is a very elite religious group who were looked upon highly in society back in that day, in Jesus' time. And Jesus would often excoriate them because of their self-righteousness, because they trusted in themselves and would say things like, hey, it's, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick who need a physician, those who know that they're spiritually dead in a sense um and he contrasts this pharisee with a tax gatherer back in that day when a tax gatherer was a, a jew who worked in cohorts with the roman government to collect money from their own people they were despised these were individuals that were outcasts in society these were uh, greedy and 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 considered uh some of the worst of society back then by by those people. And um, so Jesus is contrasting a Pharisee and a, and a tax collector. He says two 
two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, it's predictable that the Pharisee goes to the temple and prays. That's what he does. But the tax collector, that... I mean, that's got to be a shock already to the people that are yeah. standing by listening to, the, to Jesus. And, and then Jesus says in verse 11, The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Yeah. Now, let me stop right there. This not everything he's doing here is all that bad. He's actually thanking God. He's not even Pelagian. Right. He's semi he's some yeah. semi-Pelagian. He's he's actually giving God the credit for all his all of his outward righteousness, but it is obviously filled with hypocritical th- tone. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He's say, saying, I'm not like all these other sinners out here. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But then in contrast, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. You see, he sees holy, holy, holy God and was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. sinner. And that word merciful is an interesting word. Because it, it in the Greek, it's, it is the idea of propitious. Mm. It's rooted in the word that Paul uses to describe our justification based upon the propitiation Versus. of Christ. Yeah, yes. You wanted to say anything about propitiation? No, go ahead. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. During, it it literally means to satisfy the wrath of God, to, to satisfy God's justice, which is what Jesus did on the cross right. by shedding his blood. So we have, we have propitiation, we have expiation, you know, the, 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 the satisfaction of the wrath of God, expiation, the putting away of sin, right? Uh, and that's why Paul would later say in Romans 5, 9, being justified by Christ's blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, he's the, the, the task gatherer, he, he, he understands the depth of his sinfulness. He understands that he needs the an- to answer the question that we asked at the very beginning. How can I be justified before a holy God? How can I be made righteous? And so he says, God, be propitious or be merciful to me, the sinner. Mm-hmm. And Jesus makes an assessment of the two. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax gatherer, went to his house justified. There's that word, Mm -hmm. justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus himself is affirming this doctrine of justification by faith, by the very mercy of God, by the very propitiation of propitious work of Christ by the grace of God alone in Christ alone yeah. already. Yeah, that's and good. he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. <laughs> right, right. That's a great way to end. Thanks for that, Dean. Thanks for hanging out with me, talking about justification. Um, I hope that was helpful for you, who, who are the listener. Again, we just want to be a blessing and a benefit to thinking through theology and how theology connects with culture, how it connects with our everyday life too, right? What does justification mean for me? That imp- that should impact you. That should have a massive impact on your life. So thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you can put them into the comments section. Uh, if you want to you want to receive the blogs and podcasts when they drop, go to cornfieldtheology.com and be sure to put your email address at the bottom of the webpage and uh, you'll we will be sure to send it to you. We don't spam you or anything like that. You have also check us out at 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the relevant outlets. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the good stuff. We happen to be everywhere online for better or for worse. Cornfield Theology is a ministry of Redemption Hill Church. You can check us out, 10 a.m., Radiant Elementary. We meet. You know, we meet in the oddest place, Dean. <laughs> we meet in Urbandale, Iowa. But well, it's in certainly a wa- on the edge of Urbandale, right? But in a walkie school. Yeah. And you could throw a stone into Clive. So. <laughs> and not too far from Grimes. And not too far from Grimes. <laughs> it's like, it was like a boundary fight. <laughs> <laughs> up up in this part of this of the of the metro. It's a convenient ride for me, I'll tell you. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks all for listening. God bless. Peace out. Take care. Bye. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.